Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, is going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not-always-perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live-stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. So, uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, we have been um, uh, looking at the kingdom of God sort of an in-depth dive into this central unifying theology of the Bible. And in the Old Testament, we get a sort of imperfect glimpse of it now and again, particularly in David's reign. But for most of the Old Testament narrative, what it is is a longing for it. It is a hoping for the kingdom of God to come. Particularly in Isaiah and Daniel, we see this desire, this longing for God to visit his people and to vindicate them, to set them free, to establish his kingdom. And then boom. Jesus of Nazareth shows up, and his proclamation is this, the kingdom of God is at hand because I am here. He declares that he is the long-awaited king, the one on whom the Spirit has descended and will never depart, and God's kingdom has come in him, and it's a kingdom of magnitude and scope that far surpasses even the loftiest of Israel's expectations. This isn't just about a people group. This is certainly not about a land or geopolitical boundaries. This is about a cosmic, universal kingdom colliding with earth. It's the new age coming now. And Jesus demonstrates it by showing his authority over all aspects of life. He is the king over the elements. He calms the storm. He is the king over evil. He delivers the demon-possessed. He is the king over uh, sickness and death. He resurrects. He heals. He is, the kingdom. he is the king of the whole universe. And his kingdom is rightly described as good news to all people because it's for everyone. It is in our midst, he says, but, of course, it is not yet fully realized. It's here, but not yet. Present, but also future. The miraculous healing, deliverance, they coexist with actual real suffering, actual real sadness, actual real death. Not until Jesus returns will the fullness, the completeness of his kingdom be realized. But, nevertheless, he is here. The kingdom has come. It is right here in our midst. And it's for everyone. So that's what the kingdom is. That's who it's for. That's what it looks like. For the remainder of this series, we're going to talk about how we can be part of that kingdom. Jesus refers to those who are part of his kingdom as sons of the kingdom. Doesn't sound very PC. Fret ye not. He is not just talking about men. He is talking about anyone. The reason he uses the word sons is because actually what he is getting at is that we are inheritors, male and female, as the sons in his time would be. We inherit everything of the kingdom when we are part of it, its values, its mission, its character. So to be an inheritor of of the kingdom involves, one, 
quite obviously, entering the kingdom, and two, living the lifestyle of the kingdom. So how does anyone enter the kingdom of God? Now, the rabbinical Judaism of the time was obsessed with um, expediting this arrival of the king. And the way the rabbis, the way the rabbinical teaching uh, thought of uh, the means to do this was calling the people back to repentance, calling them to fulfill the law, come and be pure, and then just that possibly, just maybe, God will return to us. Ultimately, human responsibility first, and only then, maybe a chance of God's grace. Jesus announces exactly the opposite. He says the kingdom of God is already here. He says it's already here because I am here, and the blind see, and the lame walk, and the dead are raised, and the oppressed are set free. It is already on happening, and it is happening on account of nothing that humans have done, will do, or have ever done. It's happening because God is gracious. And it's not just in words, but it's in action. People don't just hear the message of grace, they experience the message of grace. Forgiveness and liberation and healing all signs of God's settled attitude towards humanity. His settled attitude being one of infinite, all-encompassing love and grace. It's like, just as Jesus describes in one of his parables, there is a banquet. It is a glorious feast for everyone to enjoy, and it's happening right now. People throw parties because they are nice, because they are generous, because they want to celebrate and they want people to have a good time. And Jesus is throwing the ultimate party. And he says, everyone's invited. It's going to be amazing. Just turn up. Just turn up. You don't even bring a gift. No, you don't even have to bring a cheap bottle of wine from Trader Joe's. You can just come. Some, though, particularly the religious and the sanctimonious, the Pharisees, can't be dealing with undeserved generosity, and do not show up. So the host has to go out into the streets and bring in more and more people, the vagrants and the hookers and the despised and the rejected, those so rarely invited to any parties that they are certainly not going to turn down this invitation. It's the harlots and the tax collectors who enter Jesus' kingdom first. It's those who are the last in this world who are the first in the kingdom. Because the kingdom of the living God, the only kingdom that matters, is based not on merit, but on grace. Everyone is invited, and that actually does mean everyone, which necessarily also means you, whatever you think of yourself. I was reading an article about a private members club. I'm not going to name it. It may or may not have an outpost in West Hollywood and also in downtown, but I'm not going to name it. It is a private, I have nothing against private members clubs. I understand that uh, people need somewhere to be private. They need to have meetings outside of the public gaze, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not getting into that. But anyway, what I was interested in, in reading about this club, they were talking about how 
they sort of prided themselves on a different way of uh, having membership. What they were not interested in was people who were necessarily moneyed or necessarily famous or necessarily powerful. They just wanted good people. Good people, whatever that meant. They did seem quite self-congratulatory about this. But anyway, what was interesting to me was, despite their best intentions to just bring in interesting, good people, the attitudes that this engendered didn't seem like it was making anyone particularly better. In fact, the director of membership in this article said this, the very worst people, it mattered tremendously to them that they weren't allowed in, which doubled our satisfaction of rejecting them. And then, secretly, I'd hear of great joy that people would have in knowing friends, colleagues, neighbors who weren't admitted people whose bosses were incensed that they were let in while their junior executives were not. Sorry, that they weren't let in while their junior executives were. Apparently, Kim Kardashian's been rejected multiple, multiple times. Like, obviously, no one's going to want me in that club. But even if they did, if Kim's not going to be there, what's the point? This is the point. All kingdoms based on merit, however that merit is defined, lead to pride and superiority and exclusivity and bullying. A kingdom based on grace, on the other hand, engenders childlike wonder, humility, and a deep, deep-seated love for our fellow kingdom inheritors. We look around and we see people and we see them as equals. Not equally talented, not equally beautiful, not necessarily equally flawed or with equal potential, but equally human. Equally in desperate need of God's grace for us. Equal in love and acceptance. And a kingdom built on grace just engenders more and more and more and more grace the most powerful force in the whole universe that turns the world upside down. That is what God's kingdom is all about. There's a party and everyone is invited, including the membership directors of every private members club across the world. They're invited too. Now, in Jesus' thinking, entering the kingdom of God is synonymous with being saved or gaining eternal life. They are interchangeable terms. But you can see, can't you, how what Jesus describes is like a million light years away from what so many, unfortunately, Christian formulations of what it is to be saved have been uh, kind of presented as. Jesus' teaching is the opposite of repent so you escape hell. It's repent so you enjoy heaven. And it's not repent so you enjoy heaven when you die. It's repent so you enjoy heaven right here, right now. The banquet is set. You've just got to show up. Which is not to say that the repentance required is easy. Indeed, the repentance Jesus requires is utterly uncompromising. It's about going from a position where Jesus was not Lord and now he's going to be Lord. 
It involves faith. It involves us actually believing he is who he said he was. It's actually believing that he is king of the universe, the Messiah, the long-awaited king. It also involves humility, which may be far more difficult for us to actually uh, embrace. Giving up our self-centered version of life and allowing him to not just be Lord of the universe, but Lord of us. King of every aspect of our life, our relationships. Want him to be in charge of those? Our work, our time, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits. It's leaving behind anything, anything that inhibits his lordship. The kingdom is here. We cannot have the kingdom without the king. But this repentance... This is the repentance that brings us into the experience of heaven right here, right now. Joy and peace and healing and deliverance. It's that humility that Naomi was talking about, about actually just trying to open themselves. And what you receive is the kindness of God, that he actually knows you, that he knows the details of your life and he cares. So in other ways, it's the simplest, easiest thing to do in the world because the benefit is just so great. So that's entrance into the kingdom. Let's turn our attention to the lifestyle that the kingdom engenders. It's uncompromising, it's upside down, it's revolutionary, and it's radical. So let's pause there just for a second. Can I just ask you, uncompromising, radical, honestly, ask yourself, do you really want that? I've got three kids. They're quite tiring. I coach under 12 girls soccer. It takes a lot of my time and thought. Succession season three is starting quite soon. I've barely got time to have a haircut, let alone pick up my cross and carry it. I'm being serious. Do we want uncompromising and radical? I remember having a drink with a, uh, the leader of the church that we were part of in London. Uh, and we were um, friends, and we worked together, and we had just heard a speaker at a conference who was one of those people that um, are slightly scary in their purity. I mean, utterly compelling. This was someone who so clearly loved Jesus, so clearly loved other people, and she had all these stories of what she had seen, this, these stories of faith. She'd seen incredible he healings. She'd seen a whole room of children who were deaf from birth be given back their he hearing as a result of each other praying for them. She'd seen uh, the blind see. She'd seen even a resurrection. And she was just, but she was just so nice and amazing and slightly scary in her holiness. And my friend and I were talking about this in the pub afterwards, and we were saying, what does it take to be that person and to see that? And what we decided for us, just to start with, it meant giving up Arsenal our soccer team, that we spent hours and days discussing and watching games and listening to podcasts about that. Just as a starting point, it probably meant giving that up. 
and then we might get onto some of the other things. And then, so we, we settled on this, and then we went to the bar, bought another pint, sat down and talked about Arsenal for another hour or so. We're mixed bags, aren't we? You and I. With mixed motives, and we can't always be relied upon. I'm not saying this to excuse any behavior. I'm just pointing out a matter of fact. This is actually really important for us to grasp. We are mixed bags. All of us could do well to know that, believe it, and accept it. This is something I'm going to come back to in, in a minute. But for now, let us choose, take the courage to sit for a while with just how radical and uncompromising the lifestyle of the kingdom actually is. The ethics of the kingdom that Jesus embodies and teaches are necessarily radical because they belong to a whole new age. Jesus' constant refrain is in his Sermon on the Mount that you've heard it said, but now I say to you. This is not about him abolishing the law and the prophets. It's about elevating them to a whole new level beyond the capability of humans. So, here are just a few tasty morsels of the ethics that Jesus talks about in his kingdom. Would you like to take a little ethical inventory of yourself, measure yourself against these? This could be fun. In no way. Matthew 5, 21. You heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Next one. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks at a man or a woman, or a woman or a man, lustfully, has already committed adultery with him or her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Doing okay? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, you may have heard some teaching, uh, more recent teaching, about how this could well mean that when you're turning the other cheek, you are forcing someone to slap you either with their full hand, which is to basically call you an equal, or with their left hand, which is their poo hand. So you are shaming them. But the point, whether that's true or not, is not really that. The point is you've got to turn the other cheek. I said... I said poo head, poo hand, poo head, poo hand, whatever. The point is turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the other cheek, always. If anyone wants to take your, you, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Next, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow you, from you. Just a couple more. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Just one final one, in case anyone is here going, done all that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If the Sermon on the Mount were taken to be a moral standard that people are supposed to attain, no one could ever hope to enter the kingdom of God. But it is not. Jesus is not describing a new set of rules. He's describing what happens to us when we pass out of the present age, enter his kingdom, and start to live as people of the age to come. This is what heaven looks like. And heavenly people, sons and daughters of the kingdom, which is already here in part, have undergone a whole revolution of their lives, their whole way of being. Let us, if it's not too uncomfortable, delve a little deeper. This collision between the age to come and the present time is seen no more clearly in Jesus' Beatitudes, these pithy little sayings which describe what it is like for people in his kingdom. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he is not saying, hey, if you want to be holy, you should do some more mourning. Mourning's great. Mourn more. That's what I'm telling you. That's what good people do. He's not saying that. He is bringing to mind a group of people. And the group of people he is bringing to mind are those who are grieving for the state of the world. Those who are grieving the godlessness and the brokenness and the hurt and the pain, both their own godlessness, their own failure to be the people that they were created to be, but also the whole world. They are mourning the state of the universe. And Jesus says to them, blessed are you because in my kingdom, godlessness is getting destroyed. In my kingdom, I am wiping away all imperfection, all wrongdoing in you personally and in the corporate cosmic atmosphere, I'm getting rid of it all so you can be comforted, you can be restored. You don't need to worry anymore. This is great comfort to those who are mourning. Similarly, blessed are the persecuted because in the kingdom of God, there is no persecution. Blessed are the meek, the poor in spirit, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the poor in spirit. Said that already twice. In short, blessed are any of those who, whose values align with God's kingdom. Because they, in God's kingdom, are going to be satisfied. They're not going to be trampled on or forgotten or despised. They're not going to be disappointed anymore because Jesus is here and his kingdom is at hand. So be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Is Jesus describing the quality of the kingdom and its people? It's like Jesus has appeared as a wrecking ball. His perfection and his kingdom is on a collision course with our deeply flawed and imperfect world. And it can't help but turn all of that corruption on its head. It's a revolution. But it's not based on some temporary political cause. It's a revolution brought on by the age of to come, the age of the future, invading the present. As it says in Acts, the people of Thessaloniki report, 
These people, these Christians, have turned the world upside down and have come here to act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. So, the question for us, right here, right now, and ongoingly, is not, how good have you been? Have you been a good Christian boy? Have you been a good Christian girl? The question Jesus has for us is, how much of the new age of my kingdom can you handle? How much do you want? It is within your grasp. Just reach out and let the king be king. Back to mixed bags. The kingdom is here, but we're still here with this carpet. We are glorious new creations, filled with God's spirit. But we endure traffic jams and people spelling our names incorrectly on Starbucks cups and just Starbucks in general. And cancer and heartache and gossip and broken people, ourselves included, breaking other people. As people of the coming age living in the present, there will always be this tension. We are already and not yet people. This is one of the most fundamental things to understand and allow to sink deep into you as a Christian person. Understanding and living in the tension will do us untold good in living at peace in being able to be useful in God's kingdom, to not be defeated, to not be triumphalist, to actually be who we are so that he can change us and so that we can impact this world for his kingdom. Paul sums up the issue in 2 Corinthians. Firstly, that we are kingdom people now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come but also we are kingdom people not yet. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We are not there yet. There is no contradiction here. Rather, it's an accurate depiction of the reality of our situation. You see, the tension that we have between the already and not yet does not apply just to the outward workings, but you know, we pray for healing. Some people are healed. Some people are not because the kingdom is here and it's already, but it's also not yet. It is also in our internal being, who we are as people. We are new creations. Nothing can ever change that we are people of heaven, but we war against the flesh. The old age, we are susceptible to temptation and sin. This is what it's going to be like for the rest of our time here on earth. Christian maturity is about living at peace with that tension. The problem is, of course, we don't do very well with tension as human beings. Partly, one, because we are made for heaven, and partly, two, because we're very familiar with earth. And so we tend to choose one or the other rather than actually living where we are. And there are various churches who will um, emphasize and concentrate on the groaning 
on the, on the waiting, on the despairing texts. And then there will be churches that will concentrate on the other things, the triumphant new creation overcoming texts. Um, Hannah and I had the pleasure of listening to a um, hipster pastor talk for about 40 minutes to his congregation about how everyone has to be far more minimalist. And he put a limit on only having three T-shirts. You can only have three T-shirts. Uh, you should also be off social media. And if you don't go to the gym four times a week, you would see this as a sin. So this is really an outworking of old monastic beliefs that poverty is somehow a sign of a heightened spirituality. Now, humility is obviously essential in the kingdom. To be poor in spirit is to know our utter need and dependence on God, and it is a requirement for being part of his kingdom. Whether we are materially poor or as rich as Croesus, we still need to be poor in spirit. It is about being, uh, allowing God to be God. But what is not biblical is the idea that seeking out poverty or its common bedfellows, self-flagellation or humiliation or escape from the dirtiness of the world because it's all too much. This is not heightened spirituality. Our bodies are not to be despised. Beauty and wonder and extravagance and all those extraordinary things that we see in the depiction of creation, the beginning of Genesis, more than enough. This is what we're made for. Poverty is a curse. And Jesus, the king of his kingdom, loves the poor particularly because he has come to relieve them. He has come to set them free. On the other hand, Christians can be guilty of an overemphasis on triumph. The idea that heaven is fully here and nothing bad will ever, ever happen to us ever again if we just believe. If I hear one more song about how we are all superhuman, mountain-climbing, history-making, extraordinary, magical people, I don't know what I'm going to do. Probably just moan about it in sermons like this. It's my only recourse. It's an understandable reaction to the defeatist, self-flagellating Christianity that I've just described, but it's no less flawed. It produces unreal people living in spiritual bubbles who huddle together, telling one another they, how great they are, despite all evidence to the contrary. But more importantly, never actually impacting or having compassion on a suffering, in-pain world. Worse, breeding fanaticism or arrogance. Instead, can I just ask all of us, let's just be kingdom people. You are a person of heaven. You are living in the new age. But you're also not yet. You will stumble and fall. Over and again, we will display all the evidence of our fallen earthly nature. This is where we are living. I say this not to excuse anyone's behavior. I say it to reassure us. This is reality. But, and here is the big but, and I cannot lie. 
Sorry. But the more Jesus becomes the king of our own little personal fiefdoms, the more we let him begin and continue his revolutionary life in us. And as Naomi was saying, this is an ongoing process. This is not a one and done. This is the beginning. This is the ongoing. This is our lot for the whole of our time here. The more we let him be Lord, the more we will experience of our heavenly nature right here, right now in our own lives, in the ways in which he will use us to heal the sick, to release the oppressed, to raise the dead, to bring good news to a world in desperate need. Ultimately, let me reassure you, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. We're all destined for heaven. We're going to get there. Be encouraged. But in the meantime... Let us take courage. I'm asking you to be bold. I'm asking you to get over yourself a little bit and let him be Lord. Uh, John Wimber, the church leader who founded the Vineyard Movement, probably the the one person who has had the most um, impact on how we do church here. He used to introduce himself He was incredibly powerfully used, but he used to introduce himself as this. I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven. He was very fat. That's a good mantra for us. We are just people. We're just people trying to get to heaven. Accept who we are but allow him to be king. And see what he'll do. Who knows? See what he'll do, though. Don't you want to see what he might do to you? What he might do through you? Life's too short. Imagine what he could do. Amen. Amen. Let's sing a song, I think. In a minute, in a minute, we're going to pray for people at the front. Um, Three groups of people that I think it would be good to pray for. You can come for any reason, but these three groups of people I think it would be good to pray for. Um, Group number one. uh, Just a second, sorry. Sorry, Ben. Thank you. Um, Just like to hear the sound of my own voice. Uh, Group number one. Those who are not sure um, whether they've entered the kingdom of heaven. Do you know that Jesus loves you? I know that's a very simple, simple question.
but you'd be astounded by how many people who don't, who've been in church all their lives. Group number one. Group number two. Those who need to know that God sees them and God blesses them. Those who are mourning, those who are grieving, those who are hungering and thirsting after the goodness of God, but don't feel it, don't know it. You are the people Jesus has come for. He wants you to know that you're blessed, that he sees you and he loves you. Group number three. Those for whom faith has become a bit stale. Those who want to be used. Those who've been doing this Christian thing for a while, but it just doesn't feel very powerful. For all three groups, the the responsibility on us is very simple. It's just saying, Jesus be Lord. It's actually giving ourselves to him again. Very simple, but quite confrontational, isn't it? It gets to the core of who we are. But the benefits are so enormous. I want to encourage you, be bold, be courageous. Take him at his word. The whole of the Bible is about it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Good? Good. Uh, So let's stand and we'll sing a song about private members clubs or something. So let's just sing this. Uh, In this time, just do what you need to do with God. Tell him what you need to tell him. Allow him to speak to you. You don't have to sing the words necessarily, but this is about doing business with the Holy Spirit, allowing him to fill you, allowing him to speak to you. He loves you very much.